to join me. Rob, it's really great to have you here uh, and uh, very exciting to be thinking not just about the reformation of the past, but reformation today. Ooh, we'll get on yeah. to that in a minute. Um, as on you a will, Wednesday as well. I mean, on a Wednesday there's going to be reformation. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, Rob, you are rector of St Mary's Cheadle, chairman of the Fellowship of Word and Spirit and member of General Synod. How do you find the time? Um, grace. I think two things. <laughs> Uh, God is gracious, um, and uh, I have learned how to delegate. Um, so by passing on and sharing the load with others who um, I depend on, mm. um, actually God enables things to happen. So I do that with all sorts of different things. So Great. you know, I don't have to read all the general synod papers when I have a couple of people in the congregation who read them up and flag things up nice. for me. Nice. Good. Why do it alone? Is yeah. That- uh, <laughs> there you go. There's some wonderful advice if you're starting out in ministry. Um, just tell us a little bit about the Fellowship of Word and Spirit. Some people here may not know anything about that or may have heard of it, but not quite be quite sure what it is. Tell, it, tell us what that is. And... Well, the Fellowship of Word and Spirit is really a, uh, is a fellowship of people committed to Reformed theology in a contemporary expression of it within the Church of England. Uh, it's been um, kicking around since the 80s, but it was mainly... Um, well, it mainly does what it says. It is mainly a fellowship um, that we build on the assumption that if God's going to revive the nation, that it will come not by just doing politics, but actually by studying, praying, um, encouraging one another in ministry. Uh, we have conferences where you actually confer, which is a radical thought, uh, where actually um, input is given and you, you, we have you know, half the time of a session actually mulling over with the scriptures open and, and building each other up in that way. Um, one, this isn't always my experience. I'm sure it'll be better here than, than others. It's my first time here. But, um, you know, it's a conference where you come back refreshed rather than exhausted, mm. which is, um, is a great joy to me. And, uh, you know, there's about a couple of hundred people on our books across the uh, country, often, you know, not exclusively, but often in some of the smaller churches. It seems to me you need a Reformed theology to go work in a church where your congregation aren't coming from the same place you are. Mm. Um, you need to have a conviction about the sovereignty of God and grace and, uh, and the gospel to, to be there. So um, quite a few of our fellowship are in those sorts of places. And, um, and actually what we need is to support each other. So, um, yeah, we produce things occasionally to write and, and, and things as well. Wonderful. That sounds great. And um, St Mary's Cheadle is something uh, which we call a church society parish. Could you just explain to us what that means to be a church society uh, parish in that way? Um, well, it means the church society is the patron, so it was members of church society who were foolish enough to invite me to look at it. Um, so at one sense, when there's a vacancy, the church society are the ones who manage the vacancy and do the sort of pre-vetting of people who go there. But, you know, occasionally people like me slip through the net. Um, <laughs> although I should say, actually, um, St Mary's has a great affection because it's the church where I was converted. So I actually um, come back to the place where, um, you know, warts and all, people know me. Um, which opens the door for the gospel, but also keeps you humble as a minister. It means you can't pretend to be holier than you are when people can remember what you really like. Um, but actually, uh, the support of church society means that in that process of discernment, um, the foundations of conservative evangelical theology um, within the Church of England are key in the appointment process. And although it's a bit of a Reformation legacy, actually, patronage, it was given to protect... Um, parishes who had become Protestant from being taken over by a Catholic bishop again 
Um, it was a way of helping the gospel grow. Um, it does still have that effect today. Um, and although you will hear quite a few people who are down on the idea of patronage, actually it's a real blessing to the church and has kept the Church of England from the same precipitate speed of change that maybe America had suffered, for example. Um, not that there aren't pressures here, as you know, but um, it's a great blessing. So I'm very grateful for Church Society. Thank you, yes. Um, we have patronage of, I don't know, 120, 130, 130 parishes around the country, and, and that number is growing. So uh, it is a, a work that um, takes a lot of time and, and investment uh, from various people associated with Church Society, but it's something we think is very important uh, for those reasons that Rob mentioned, for preserving uh, evangelicalism within the church for the future. Rob, I'm going to pray for you and some of those things that you're involved in and then hand over to you. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for calling Rob uh, to serve in the many ways that he does. Uh, thank you uh, for calling him back to minister in that church where he uh, first came to know you. Uh, we pray for him uh, to be a faithful minister of the gospel in that parish. Uh, but we also pray uh, for those things he's involved in in a wider way, the work of the Fellowship of Word and Spirit uh, and on General Synod. And Father, we pray now that as we think about what it will mean uh, to reform the church today, uh, we pray that you'd help uh, Rob to speak with great wisdom and clarity uh, for us to be challenged and convicted about our role in that, uh, trusting always uh, that the Lord Jesus will build his church. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ros. You've probably come across um, this quote before from The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Charles Dickens, he was writing about the French Revolution, but it did seem to me those words are very applicable to where we are in the Church of England today. It is a watershed moment in many ways in the Church of England and indeed in the Church in England, um, in the wider Church and even as the Reformation of the 16th century saw the change of direction of the church alongside a revolution in political and social landscape of the nation, so the cultural pressures on the church of our day have brought us to a tipping point. These are telling you things you know, but we are in the midst of a crisis of influence in the Church of England. The number of self-identifying Anglicans has fallen by 4.6 million in the last 10 years, from 29% of the population to 17%. That is over 52 people an hour, which um, is just a little bit larger than the average number of people on a Sunday in an Anglican church. We're closing a church an hour at the moment in the Church of England. Uh, incidentally, while retaining most of the buildings, which drain our resources accordingly. Uh, there's a crisis in ministry. You've probably seen some of this from the Renewal and Reform Programme for Resourcing Ministerial Education, identified that with a 50% increase in vocations, by 2027, we'll have roughly 750 less clergy than today, about 10% less. You can see some of the adjustments that they're planning on. Uh, in fact, you can't quite see them because the yellow is a bit yellowy. But um, uh, one suggestion that's seriously thinking says everybody has to retire at 69. And if we do that, there'll only be uh, uh, whatever that figure is. Uh, 
587 less clergy than we need. Or, or if we increase by 50% the number of ordinands, there'll only be 66 less clergy than we need. Unfortunately, at the moment, 14% is the rate of increase of the number of ordinands, which is 529 less. Ministry is under great challenge. There's a crisis of finance. There's the good news. In the last seven years, the average giving per church member has gone up 30%. Isn't that great? But there are 70,000 people less giving that money. And that figure is increasing because it correlates to an interesting demographic. The average age of a Church of England member is now 61, which is the group in our culture that has the most disposable income because their kids' education was paid for, they've got good pensions, they had uh, the housing boom <coughs> profits um, from 20 years ago. And uh, in 10 years' time, when the average age of a church member at retirement, it'll be my generation, they've generally got big mortgage, poor pensions, and kids with educational debts. See, this trend of generosity, at least demographically, is not likely to continue. We're, um, we're in the season of plenty, the seven years of plenty before the seven years of famine. I could add to the list of crises. Uh, you will probably have your own, but there is generally a crisis of morality in our culture. Individual freedom has replaced collective responsibility. What's good for society is no longer important. It's you can't tell me what I can't do. And as a crisis in community, disintegration of the family, of the collective community replaced by a consumer community, People just don't do things together anymore. You buy in your activities and relationships. That's what people mean by community these days. The community I belong to is the, the um, toddler group that I pay for and the people that are with it. And, of course, we know there's the crisis of gender and sexuality. Um, in our culture, Facebook now gives you 40, over 40 options to the question, what sex are you? And that's one of the reasons it's a presenting issue, most of which I can't even understand let alone uh, look it up. Look it up for yourself. Um, and I dare say, a crisis in what the perspective of what faith is. Faith in our culture has become at best a therapy, a personal therapy, an opinion, not the foundation of reality or anything ultimate in any way. And Christian faith is something that we might and tend to even say might be just something that's good for people if they want it, rather than something that establishes eternal destiny and you see even the church we're getting confused about that because as long as we can keep the doors open for whoever we uh, we can be a help to people in the debate in july which i was in general synod we debated a liturgy for the transition of transsexuals of whom there are roughly six thousand in the uk since the year 2000 in the millennium about six thousand of them if you correlate that to the number of people who go to church that means at most 600 would be interested in one, and given that most of the transsexuals I know would rather not make a public statement about it, probably we spent two and a half hours debating what, whether Lou should make liturgy for maybe 60 people. Meanwhile, 64 million people in the UK don't connect in with Anglican worship in any meaningful sense during the year. How crazy are we? Now, I don't mention any of this to depress you or overwhelm you, but to welcome you to a new perspective and what will be the experience of Christian ministry in the next couple of decades? Reformation now. You will all be pioneers, not in the sense of church planters necessarily, but in the sense that you'll be leading us into unknown territory. This generation will definitely see 
the reformation of the Church of England. It will look radically different at the end of your ministries, if you're beginning today, than it will be today. And it's new territory. What are we going to build there? What do we do being Anglican in the middle of a crisis, or even being Christian in the middle of it? Because the Lord is watching. It's great, even the Psalms speak of it. Look, the wicked bend their bows and set their arrows to shoot from the shadows at the upright. But when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the psalmist says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. So what I want to explore with you for a little bit is how can the reformation of the church become a reformation now? Because I want to take um, Paul's example seriously in 1 Corinthians 10, that set of scriptures, all these things happened as examples and were written down for warnings on us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And take you to one of the most read books of the Bible, 2 Chronicles. <laughs> 2 Chronicles 29, indeed, to a time where the people of God were in what looked like a terminal crisis in the days of King Hezekiah. Just because I think trying to navigate such a subject helps as if we have some of the parameters of the scriptures to guide us. Let me just paint the picture a bit. You can read this for yourself. Um, it is really worth reading the whole uh, thing and the, the chronicler is very helpful for us looking at revival because he was writing against the backdrop of, a, of the demise and coming out of exile of um, the people of God. But um, the situation under King Hezekiah was that he inherited his father's church. Ahaz, his father, had caved in completely to the culture of his day. That involved a theological compromise. Chapter 28, verse 2 says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made cast idols for worshipping Baals. It was the new inclusive ecumenical theology. It integrated the worship of Yahweh alongside Baal and Asherah, which are usually popularly associated with fertility and sex cults. An obsession with inclusion and sex, not so million miles away from today. There was um, cultural compromise. They'd been defeated militarily, not just at the hands of Damascus, but also of Israel, their supposed brothers and sisters. And the impact on Ahaz was to cave into their culture. If we'd been defeated, we should adopt what they're doing. That was his strategy. And two kings actually tells us that Ahaz, when he was taken captive to D Damascus, saw the pagan altar there, copied it, and set it up in God's temple back in Judah. So in chapter 28, verse 23, uh, he says, here's his reasoning given to us in scripture, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. That's good, you know, if you're giving in, if culture's winning, let's adopt the ways of the culture. Because if they're winning, then maybe we'll be winning if we become like them. Ahaz, indeed, was the one who eventually sent to Assyria to help him with his domestic problems, which triggered the invasion and the exile of Israel and the final attack and near defeat of Judah. Don't get into bed with the enemy. But alongside that, there was a lot of personal compromising at the popular level with religious liberalism and cultural chaos meant that the people of Judah privatized their faith. So in chapter 28 verse 24 it says um, 
of Ahaz, he took furnishings from the temple of God, took them away, he shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Um, the temple doors were shut. And instead, the new idea wasn't to gather in buildings, to gather as churches, but have your own faith, your own altar, wherever you want to do, to whoever you want to do it, wherever you want to do it. Ministry went into decline, because you were what you need ministers for if you're all doing your own thing and have your own faith. There was no money, no way to return to the great days of Solomon. It seemed inexorable. But then came Reformation. Let me just read you the first few verses of uh, 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah succeeded him as king. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Incidentally, not his father Ahaz. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square. There's only 14 of them at this point. And said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary because our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They shut the porticoes of the temple, put out lights, didn't burn incense or offerings. Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He's made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, why our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord the God of Israel, so his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Look, humanly speaking, Reformation was impossible, wasn't it? He was only young. He was 25. He had only 14 friends uh, in the Levites, uh, whose names are all listed for us a little bit later on. Uh, not much compared to David and Solomon when there were thousands of people involved in the temple. Ministry really got to a low ebb there. But we know that when the reform happened, it happened unexpectedly and quickly. At the end of chapter 29, it says the service of the temple was re-established. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. And at the end of his life, it led to the change of the nation. And the summary verse, although it comes before the PS on his life of the failures because he wasn't perfect. But at the end of chapter 31, it says this. In everything he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. I think those words and his life is the key to turning the crisis into a reformation. If um, in doubt what to say, plagiarise, let me nick an illustration from um, a Mormon. <laughs> a guy called Stephen Covey, who makes a very powerful point in seminars. He is, um, or used to be, one of the best paid time management gurus of America. And he's paid hundreds of dollars, uh, people pay hundreds of dollars to attend his seminars. So I'm giving you this for free. 
Uh, and what he does at the beginning is he sets out a very large glass jar and a box of rocks and says, I want to fill the jar, and he puts the rocks into the box. And he says, notice, if you move them around, you can get them fit together rather than just dumping them in randomly. Good illustration, get planning. And he asks everybody, is it full? Well, you can't get any more rocks in a jar like that. Until he draws out a bunch of pebbles and, uh, and he says, well, okay, no rocks can go in, but the pebbles can. If you use the spaces you've got a bit more, let's get it full. There's always a bit of space. Let's put the pebbles in. Is it full now? Well, you know, once you paid 100 you might be a bit thick having paid $100 to hear this, but um, they're not totally thick. So there's bound to be a trick, isn't there? So, yeah, there is, of course, because he pours in the sand and says, no, you can get even the sand in. Uh, there's bound to be something else. If you shake it together and pat it down, you can absolutely pack every part of the jar, can't you? No, because actually, if you take a jug of water, you can pour water in and fill uh, even the spaces in between the grains of sand. And then he turns to his crowd and he says, what's the point I'm making about your life? So what? And they know they've paid their money. If you really work at it, you can always get more in. And in the seminars, that's what they say. And he said, that's not the point at all. He said, the point is this, if you don't put the big things in first, you'll never get them in. <laughs> there is too much to fill everything. If you don't put them in first, you'll never get them in. And I think that's actually the key to this crisis. That's what the early reformers did in the 16th century. I gather Mike Reeves gave you their rocks. Salvation through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, under the authority of scripture alone, living for God's glory alone. That gave them the impetus, those things to resist the highly complicated traditions of medieval Catholicism and church life. It, the church in those days was dispensing grace and salvation. You can't make those core rocks of reformation fit alongside all the trappings and the, the wasted sand of Catholicism. And that's what Hezekiah does too. This is what he did throughout Judah. What was good and right and faithful before the Lord is God. In everything he undertook in the service of God's temple and obedience to the law and commands. He sought his God and worked wholeheartedly and so he prospered. And God's word sums up those big things in Hezekiah's life. I've summarised them in those four which we're just going to look at. He re-established a vision of the sovereignty of God. He returned to the authority of God's word. He understood the privilege of sacrificial service of God's people. And he experienced the grace of God at the centre of it all. And that's what I want to think about. The sovereignty of God. To turn a crisis into a reformation. Reformation can only begin if we renew our vision of who our God is. The first thing said about Hezekiah in verse 2 of chapter 29 is he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, not what his father Ahaz had done, but in the one who actually did right. And summed up in 31 verse 20, he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord. You know, one of the characteristics of the 16th century Reformation was that uh, it was living before God. 
Carl Truman, in his book on the Reformation, um, which I thought was going to be the one that had been cribbed for the conference, actually, because it's Reformation yesterday, today and tomorrow. So, um, but I haven't nicked his talk. I could have actually probably better this one. But anyway, um, he said, he said, the Reformation, he defines Reformation as the move to place God as he's revealed himself in Christ at the centre of the church's life and thought. A move to place God as he's revealed himself in Christ at the centre of, of church's life and thought. But um, R.C. Sproul, who I'm a fan of, um, he puts it like this. What's the big idea of the Christian life? He says, the big idea of Christian life is coram deo. Coram deo is the essence of the Christian life. To live coram deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. You know, reformation of God's church is urgent and ultimately inevitable because the church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the sovereign God. He has the power and the purpose to reform his church. See, what moved Hezekiah to dare to stand up and start again in his day was the realisation that it wasn't just him. It was the God whom he worshipped who was in charge of all. It wasn't going to be his power that brought about change, but faithfulness to the God whose power is sufficient for all of our needs. And that's why we can't be content with some sort of limited expression of Christian religion, as though it would be okay to belong to some sort of smaller, purer version of a church if the Church of England falls apart. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not just our fan. He's not just our club leader. He is the Lord of those who hate him as much as he is Lord of those who serve him. Why else would you be Anglican? Because you can make life far easier not being Anglican, except that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, the truth of God's sovereignty is the gospel, isn't it? It's the word of faith we're proclaiming is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We're proclaiming the one who is the judge, our judge of all in eternity, every single human being, our judge is Jesus. And that's good news because that Lord and judge is also a saviour who loves those who come to him. He trusts, who trusts him and him he ransoms from his judgment. It is our gospel, but God's sovereignty is also our motivation. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know, one of the um, great distorting uh, trends of our advertising age has been to make that verse say something that it didn't mean. Um, our problem is, since Ferraro Rocher produced an idea of what the ambassador should be like, we've thought, Ambassador Christ, brilliant. I could eat chocolate all day and be with a <laughs> load of posh people. I try, but anyway. Um, we, at one of our FWS conferences, we had Richard Pratt over, who's a brilliant um, Old Testament theologian in the States. Um, third millennium ministry, it's worth looking up online if you've not come across it. Uh, but he made the point that actually to be ambassador in the ancient world... The ambassadors were the one who had the job of travelling ahead of an invading king's army to tell the city ahead of them to submit to this invading king or come under his wrath. 
That was their job. Their job, going to the city, say, my king's coming. You need to bow the knee to him, otherwise he'll destroy you. If you resist, you'll suffer. Of course, what would happen? His ambassadors were generally at least humiliated and often had their heads removed from their bodies and sent back in a basket. It shouldn't surprise us that the gospel's hard because we're ambassadors. It's not going to be chocolate eating, but it will be proclaiming a truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I'd like to suggest that being Anglican is the best way of proclaiming that to the nation, which is why we shouldn't give up on it, why it's worth fighting for. Do you know what the Church of England motto is? Anybody? We have a motto. Christian presence in every community. Okay, it's, it's front page of the headline. There it is, on the website. A Christian presence in every community. So, though, Lee and Ross win the, the, win the uh, prize on that one. I don't know who thought of it. But actually, it does make an interesting point. Being Anglican is at least telling everybody that we're proclaiming the sovereignty of God by showing that wherever uh, in the nation you are, you're in the presence of Christ. There's a Christian presence there. And you're pastored by a Christian. God is sovereign even where um, Muslims are in the majority, for example. I think it's great. I've got a big Jewish community in my parish. I can say, I am your minister. Because the Church of England's proclaiming that. They may not like it, but it's our calling. It may be a quirky issue related to establishment that we're all embarrassed about, but let's embrace it as such a positive thing because it says that Jesus Christ is Lord. It gets further expressed in church schools and all the ways that the other ways we serve the community. But our vision is that the 98% of people who don't attend our churches are still our flock. Yes, a mixture of sheep and goats, but we're not the ones who decides which the sheep and goats are. In the ancient world, you'd still have to pastor both even if they got sorted out at the end of the day. Our king and judge will do that. But that image of God's sovereignty might be being damaged or distorted, and our culture loves to deface anything, really. But even independent churches have to live with what everybody else can see. So even if you form maybe an, an alternative Anglican ecclesial body, you're going to have to live with the embodied vision of the Church of England. Because no, we're, nobody I've seen is proposing setting up something else that has such a big vision of how, how Christ reigns over the land. It's an image of God that's worth fighting for. Not because we need to win the battle, but because Jesus Christ is Lord. It's his church. Now, remember the first reformers in the 16th century didn't think they were setting up a new denomination. Not a purer church to sit alongside Catholicism. They really believed that the reformed church was the true church of Jesus Christ. And it was the universal church still. It was Roman Catholicism that denied God's truth, distorted his sacraments and disciplined the ungodly. Disciplined the godly as though they were ungodly, I should say. And those three marks of what made you a church meant that they had ceased to be a church. They had left the fold. But those who maintained godly order and biblical authority were the church. All else are anti-Christ. And that's why you read in the Reformers, keep talking about anti-Christ. It's not because they're you know, trying to be um, Ian Paisley-esque and get all sort of over the top about things. 
it was because they were have it clear that they could not belong to something that was anti-Christ. They would belong to the Church of Jesus Christ, and that was the Reformed Church. That's why Calvin wrote his Institutes, if you ever read his long introduction, because he wanted to persuade the King of France that the Reformed Church was the universal church. And it took him a lot of words to do it. I wonder if the king ever read it. I don't know. Maybe that's why they struggled and got persecuted so much. But um, that's what moves Hezekiah to action, this vision. It's possible, and I think likely, he got that vision from Isaiah himself, who, of course, is contemporary. And Isaiah, whose ministry was famously moved by a glorious vision of the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 6, you know it, I'm sure. Holy, holy, holy. Who am I? proclaiming sovereignty to a hard-hearted people. So where we can, for as long as we can, we live to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that lordship means nothing if there's no obedience, and obedience is impossible without the command. And so the second big rock of the Reformation is, of course, the word of God, to radicalise our obedience to God. Reformation is impossible unless you submit to Jesus' Lord, to submit to his word. You can't do it. That's what it is to have a Lord, is to submit to authority. What you see in Hezekiah's reforms, if you read them, is an incredible attention to the detail of the word of God. It took them, if you read on, 16 days to reconsecrate the temple. Now, temple's not that big a place. Maybe the size of this conference centre. It's not huge. How did it take them 16 days? Because they had to get every detail right. Every corruption removed. They gave attention to the detail of the word of God. And so, summed up, say, in chapter 30, verse 12, in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the kings and the officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. That's what they did. That was their agenda. They just did what they were commanded. And what characterized the king was that he was radical in that obedience. In holiness, the other way of putting it. Now, we know that the sexuality crisis in the church today is in reality a crisis about the authority of the word of God in the church. Anglican doctrine says that scripture is supreme. Our culture's anti-authoritarianism will use every technique to undermine anything that implies there is an authority over your life. And so the battleground is in very common terms. How do you get people to doubt authority? You wheel in contradictory experts. Did God really say? And then you tell emotive stories about how good it would be if you permitted it. Your eyes will be opened. And then you change the rules of those who follow God. You will surely not die. It's an ancient tactic. It's still around today. But the seed of reformation is the change in the hearts of the faithful from asking the wrong question. I, I think I'm struggling to repent of this myself, but the, the question we face in our culture has often been wrong-footed, it seems to me. For years, we've been like um, hormonal teenagers snogging in the backseat of a car. We're asking the question, how far can we go before we cross some sort of boundary. How close to the... You've been changed like that? You know, 
I know I'm not supposed to do some things, but I want to go absolutely as close to the line as I can. Of course, when temptation gets to the better of you, you'll cross it. But the change that's needed for reformation, the obedience, a radical obedience that we need for scripture is not saying how far can we go, but how holy can we be? Not say how close to the boundary you go, but how can we establish a new centre that's well away from the danger zone? We won't reform the church until we're radical in our own obedience of faith. Not saying what can I get away with, but actually where can I remove myself to be at the heart of what pleases God? To stop making excuses and start with tears. I mean, it's obvious when you think about it. Imagine if an engaged couple said, he says, I love you, but I want to know if it's okay if I kiss other women occasionally. The fact you're even asking the question shows that you've missed the point. And radical obedience takes us away from asking the stupid question and takes us back to the Lord and their obedience. And that is modelled in, it seems to me, a radical repentance. Publicly repenting of disobedience. You see, in uh, chapter 29, verses 6 to 10, Hezekiah repents not just of his own sin, but what his father's done as well. As a member of General Synod, I'm often desperately trying to excuse the poor decisions that we make from time to time. But I think I'm beginning to realise that I need to be more public in repenting of them, publicly apologising for unfaithful things, because I am associated with them. We all are. If we're in the Church of England, when something like that happens, we're all part of it. But what does that look like? We need to start praying in clergy chapters of our grief before God. We need to be unashamed not to name the dishonour. You know, most of the church, this may surprise you, most of the church, in the synod at least, don't think the sexuality issue is going to be an issue for evangelicals in the end because they haven't seen us in tears about it. They don't think at the end of the day it really, really bothers us. They can see the tears of the other side but why? Because we're not repenting of it. We're just, we're just asking, well, let's go as close as we can. Instead of saying the holiness of God calls us to a new heart. It's simply they've heard our stridency, but not our grief. It's simply true that every documented revival that I've ever read anyway has begun with a deep conviction of sin and a radical repentance. And we cannot minister reformation if we won't address that in our own hearts and publicly. To grieve before our congregations. And that too led them to a radical commitment. You see, in uh, chapter 29, verse 10, and what follows the rest of that chapter, Hezekiah basically calls to the ministers of his day, do the thing you were ordained to do. That's what he's... Sorry, it, it takes a little bit longer to say it, but let me just say it like that. Do what you're told to do. He, he says, let's renew the covenant, the promise that we made to God. Renew it. Let's do it. Let's live it. It's the joy of our faith that God has committed to his covenant. That's the joy and the foundation of Reformed theology. In the 17th century reformers, they understood that that reform of faith calls for us to covenant with God. That used to be a trendy thing to do about the time of the people we've been looking at, Owen and so on. You know, make your own covenant of holiness. Mortify the flesh. It would be a covenant before God to do it. 
But we've made radical promises in our ordination to be diligent to teach the scripture. Diligent. To, to teach the doctrine and the sacraments and the discipline of Christ. To banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines that are contrary to God's word. To be diligent in prayers, in self-discipline, in mortification. It's in your ordination, at least in the prayer book version of it. In uh, family life, in relationships in our congregations, in obedience to a bishop's godly ad- admonition. This is just doing it. That's what Reformation is. It's doing what you've promised to do if you're ordained in the Church of England. Of course, we can only do that with the help of God, which the service says, with the help of God. But as we approach the tipping points of the church, it's our covenant with God to uphold and obey his word in our ministry that we need to return to. It's tempting, when the going gets tough, to go somewhere that's easier. But you said yes to the call of God to serve in those ways in his church. So let your yes be yes. That's what Hezekiah says to Levites. Come and do it. Be who you are because God's called you to this. And he's not saying it's going to be easy or comfortable. You might not even be left with a pension at the end of it all because they may kick you out for doing what you've been called to do. But you're serving God. You're not even serving the Church of England. You're serving him. Let God judge his church. Be prophetic in lamenting and uh, lamenting the sin and upholding the truth. That's what covenant faithfulness calls for. And it shows its application also in radical worship because he prioritised seeking the presence of God in worship. Um, Hezekiah obviously reopened the temple, but then he wrote, and this is at the beginning of chapter 30, he wrote to every member of the covenant people of God. And that was radical because he didn't just do it to Judah, where he was king of, but he wrote to Israel, the northern tribes who'd just been at war with Judah in his father's day, and many of whom had been exiled by Assyria that his father had led them to lose to. He called for a radical submission to the word of God and it revolutionised his call to the people to worship. He led them to Passover. It's going to be focused on redemption, on the celebration of God's salvation. He called them to make that the centre, the gospel. And the result was when they grabbed the gospel as a people of God, the joy of it overflowed. So they didn't just do the whole week that the Bible said, they did it another week as well. We've not been doing it, let's do it some more. Verse uh, chapter 30, verse 26, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. This isn't renewal worship by liturgical precision. It was a passionate engagement with the living God through a heart-engaging worship, a word-obedient worship. See, worship centred on salvation, shaped by the word of God. That was the goal of the 16th century reformers. That was the legacy of Anglicanism to our nation. There are few more biblical liturgies than the Anglican liturgies. Because scripture, certainly in the old uh, prayer book version of it, most of the words come straight from the scriptures and are put there. Why? Because they believed that word-centred worship brought you close to the presence of God. It was feel-God worship, not feel-good worship. And it was a great gift because the wider church has often adopted a similar pattern because we did it. 
often did it first. And that's what we're not doing. See what's corporate worship today, honestly? There are lots of things to make us feel good, aren't there? It's often more about entertainment than engagement with God. I mean, yeah, it's nice to watch a video. But like watching TV, it's all passive. You're not engaging. It's nice to be visual. It excites the eyes. But we're not transformed by renewing our minds, necessarily. Cafe church, that's good. Food. <coughs> it doesn't necessarily refocus us on God. It's no coincidence, of course, that it's fasting, not feasting, that is the discipline in the church, which has somewhat dropped off our radar. Now, similarly, we know that we're called to worship God in spirit and truth, but even our words of songs often take us in a different direction. Do you know, only once that I could find in the Psalms is Israel ever encouraged to sing, I love you, Lord. Once, in Psalm 18, verse 1, and even that's not the usual word for love, actually. <laughs> it's a different word. Um, uh, more, but anyway, that's another story. And there are a couple of other illustrations uh, of references to singing of my love for God. Uh, there are four I found. But that's because what's worthy of public praise in the Psalms is not our love for God, but of his love for us, his grace. It's all about his love. And actually, that's what they were singing of, because it doesn't matter how I feel, but it doesn't matter what he feels. And that we do a disservice to our nation when we allow too much of the, I'm here to worship, I want to be close to you, Lord, I love you, Lord, I lift my voice. It's not wrong to sing those things. Don't mishear me. I hope your heart means them. But to be truthful, I don't often feel so much in love for God. Actually, it's hard sometimes to feel the immediacy of it. But I know that he loves me because Christ has died for me. That's the root of all praise, the grace of God. And radical worship recaptures that priority. And the encouragement is that that radical worship, that radical obedience to the word of God, turned the tide of his generation. The nation came back from the brink and the full and final defeat by the Assyrians in an extraordinary providence of God. God is faithful when our obedience is radical. It happened quickly. It changed the nation with only a few who were willing to actually do what they were commissioned by God to do. Let me give you another rock, and that is service. Reprioritizing sacrifice for others. Reformation is going to be impossible without sacrifice from us in the service of God. You know, I mentioned already that this reform of Hezekiah was focused on all Israel, even the enemies of Israel. But what he said to them was, people of Israel, this is um, chapter 30, verse 6, people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, you've escaped the hands of Assyria. Don't be like your fathers and brothers who are unfaithful to the God of their fathers. Serve the Lord your God so that your anger will turn away. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Hezekiah recognises something which was at the heart of the Reformation, that actually moves us in ministry. It's that he identifies himself with all of the people of God as he serves them. The doctrine of union 
in Christ was one of the key Reformation rediscoveries as the foundation of what makes us the people of God. By the Spirit of God, we are one in him. And the early reformers fought hard to articulate that fundamental unity, even as though they were um, rebuking the corruption of the institutional church of Rome. The tragedy was that the next generation forgot it, forgot that the Spirit called them to be one, and started repudiating each other. And Protestantism sadly became known as fragmenting the church, not uniting the church. But the early reformers were not of that ilk. The church to which we're ordained by Christ is not just a local congregation. If we're called of God, we're called to sacrificially serve the whole church. Not just our local church, because we're one in him. Now, let me just give a quick excursus, because in recent evangelicalism, there is a different ecclesiology around that says the church is only in heaven one day, and in a local congregation, sometimes called the Notch Robinson view. And it's not the church when you gather regionally or denominationally. That would be so much easier if it were true. You wouldn't have to worry about local congregations or relating to anybody. You wouldn't have to, you could ignore all the bad stuff and just say, well, me in my small corner and you in yours. It would be so much easier. But biblically, the image of the church as the uh, body, 1 Corinthians 12, what's the ministry called to it? It says some are called to be apostles. I don't think there were many just called to be apostles of just the church of Corinth. He's talking about a church that connects much more widely. And of course the church of Judea, Galilee, Samaria, clearly regional. Um, Acts 9.31, um, and obviously not to mention the church singular of Rome and Ephesus surely had multiple congregations at the time of Paul's writing but it's distinctively Anglican that our church is theologically intended to be manifested locally primarily article 19 visible church the congregation of faithful men but also regionally that same article ignored by some in this debate talks about the church of Jerusalem Alexandria Antioch and Rome, who of course had multiple congregations. And indeed, ultimately, nationally, Article 34, every particular national church has authority, and ultimately internationally, because we're part of the universal church. It's not congregating that gathers the church, but I would say governing, being accountable, where God calls ministry to be, which is why home groups are not churches, by the way. It's not a coincidence that the creation mandate to govern the earth, which is providentially expressed in human authorities, correlates to the church, at least in the Church of England. If you want to say, why are we the way that we are? It's because human authority expresses itself in a local parish council, in a county council, in a national level. And how do you speak the word of God to those authorities, because they're all instituted by God, Romans 13 too, you know that, every authority that exists is established by God. So when the kingship was established, when authority wasn't just led by the priest, God raised up the prophets to speak to the king. So guess what? The church expresses itself in a parish that can speak to a local council, in a in a diocese that can speak to the county, in a national church that can speak to the nation, because the word of God is the supreme authority and Jesus is Lord of all. See, that's, the, that's part of our legacy and our gift to the nation. 
human authorities that correlate to the divine authority and there's God's supreme authority over them. And that's why, this is a long intro to say, we need to engage with the God who is in charge, engage in the structures of the church, because they are intended to be the vehicle of witness to our nation. You know, one of the evangelical sins that holds us back is the theology of guilt by association. If you get involved with corrupt people, you become corrupt. You know, if you hang out with old people, you get older. That sort of thing. <laughs> now, I know Psalm 1, don't walk in the council of the wicked. I know John 2, John 10, don't welcome a false teacher. Although 3 John says, Diotrephes is in trouble for not welcoming brothers into the church. But the Reformation is not the fruit of distancing ourselves from those in the church we think are corrupted, but engaging with them. Jude 22, be merciful to those who doubt, snatch others from the fire and save them, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. It doesn't say get out and leave them. Serve them in Christ with holiness. And Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. If you genuinely care and sacrificially serve other Christians, God might use you to change them. And it works. You know, the reason I'm involved in the General Synod is that I stood and they elected me. There's nobody more surprised than I was the first time. If you are willing to be there in the places that God's decreed that authority should be exercised, in the place that the witness to the nation is decreed to happen, the voice of God is heard. Of course, that's why the lesbian and gay lobbies have been so successful, because they've been there. And they're terribly nice. They know how to work the political agendas. They appeal to how they're victimised. Who wouldn't be nice to nice people? But the Gospel says we should have both a radical association with sinners and a radical proclamation of the Gospel to them. And that's how we serve them. In our diocese, um, one of the hats I wear is convener of a thing called Chester Association, which is a bunch of evangelicals committed to Reformed theology. Uh, actually, depends. In some other circles, we get embraced by other groups as though we're a, a reform group or a church society group or a, a renew group. Or you know, actually, we were basically a bunch of Christian ministers who said God's called us to be presbyters. Let's hold ourselves accountable to the word of God. Let's pray for the diocese. Let's work to spur each other on. Everybody takes it in turns to present papers, for example. You don't have to have a guru because actually all of us are called. We all have our skills, so we all take it in turns to do something. What's your passion? Share it. Build others up. We get 20 or 30 come to regularly, the 60 to get the notes for our meetings. We are on every committee that the diocese has. In fact, most have more than one of us. The ministry committee, three of the four elected people are from that mainly conservative evangelical group. I've been elected the, house of the chair of the House of Clergy. Elected, not just, it's not a big enough group to take over the diocese, but if you care and serve and you're willing to be there, See, I believe we shouldn't be ministering alone, but we're particularly bad at evangelicals at doing our own thing. 
We're particularly bad at feeling guilty that we're not doing as well as our other brother down the road who's doing it. Actually, we're not supposed to be like that. We're not in competition to out-evangelicalize each other. We're actually out as brothers and sisters together in the ministry of Christ under the rule of Christ to, to build each other up to reach the world for Christ. And that real accountability means we need to pray together, give time as a priority to spur each other on. Which is just basic Christianity that we forget when we get ordained. Or that the Church of England makes us not do because there's too many other distractions. Don't ever lose that time to sit down with brothers and sisters around the word of God to pray for the reformation of the church. Because God won't do it if you are asking for it, if you don't care enough about it to give any time to it. But be there and the door might open. And if it doesn't, you're still under his rule anyway. It works. Fifteen years ago, the Board of Social Responsibility, Chester Diocese, effectively only did social work. Nothing distinctively gospel-focused or Christian. Last year, the head of our CSR, who's not an evangelical, she vetoed a worthy proposal about setting up a debt counselling service, saying to the meeting, what's distinctively Christian about this? How will it help the gospel be heard? Why? Because for 15 years, one of our association in a UPA parish sacrificially served that group, modelled a fruitful gospel ministry in the inner city, listened, engaged, and influenced. And because the group could see that he had a love for the people he was serving, he was listened to. It's time-consuming. <coughs> It's getting harder in our selfish culture in our liberalised church. There are less people, though, in our culture willing to serve. On Synod, you've got more politic people who are lobbying for a cause than you do godly people who are serving the church. So let's not be the lobbyists. I know there are things to fight for, but that's what we're here. We're under the sovereignty of Christ. We're here to serve the church. Let's serve and love them. And it may be God will use your influence to turn a tide, but it may also be that should the watershed be reached and there is one that will come, it might just be our loving service of others that holds them back from forcing us to leave. And as a final dimension to this, I've nearly run out of time, but anyway, I'm going to plough on regardless, which is just simply, <laughs> is simply say that we serve that service is to the whole community and not just the church. And, and we're in danger of losing that in the current mix. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, he knew there were only going to be 120 after the resurrection. There were a bunch of people that he blessed with the goodness of God who weren't at that moment converted. It takes that sort of a vision to be a blessing and bring the providence of God's common grace to the people of God to actually get you out of the complacency or the despair that we often fall into. As our church is increasingly marginalised in the community, it's increasingly vital, it seems to me, that we serve outside, out of the comfort zone. And, and that's something I want to share just from my experience has been fruitful for me. In our local parish, I purposefully set time aside to love and serve the local community. I chair the local village partnership on civic society and traders. It's, it's a great thing for a minister to do because, bluntly, non-Christians hate to have meetings even more than Christians do. 
And they're not very long, and they're usually early in the evening before all the Christians are wheeled out for their home groups and everything. You can do both, and it gives you non-Christians to know. It isn't onerous. Really, mostly I feed them coffee and biscuits. And I'm the youngest in my 50s. <laughs> it's not untypical because community is broken down in our culture. Who's serving? Building community is good news because that common grace opens the door for saving grace. It is fruitful. After 14 years, I've seen two of them converted. Two, it's two over 40 years, it's not a great track record. Uh, one of the other ones I've been praying for for 14 years actually is now in jail for fraud. <laughs> <laughs> but in those 14 years, our local church, which had had a reputation for being a bit standoffish, now is so expected to do good things in the community that actually they want us to do more than we can deliver. Our Remembrance Day has grown from 200 to about 2,000 people once the church got behind it. We run a Victorian Christmas market in conjunction with the Civic Society and the traders. Lots of people dressing up, although about 80% of them are actually church people because they're the only ones you can get to do crazy things like that. But they do it. It's such a brilliant event. The community loves it. And 3,000 people come through our doors of the church building on the first Saturday of December in which we're presenting the Christian message, and with puppets and with drama and other things as well. But actually, if we're going to bring the good news, we need to be good news. How can a crisis become a reformation? It seems to me those three rocks. A vision of God's sovereignty, a radical obedience to the word of God, and reprioritizing sacrificial service of others. Service of others in the church, because it's his church. Service of others in the community, because it's his world. And because through the church comes the blessings of the gospel and of new life. That's the fourth rock. I don't need to say much about it, though, because none of this will happen without God's blessing. Hezekiah saw God reform his church. The irony of the Reform Renewal Programme is that Archbishop Welby did call us to do that. Thy kingdom come. One of the first things he did... Say, let's pray. Let's pray for it. Well, thank God for that lead. Was that a good thing? A good thing to get behind? I've, you know, all the evangelical churches have got behind it. We ought to be, because only he can do it. But it comes when we ask him. It comes when we risk being reformed personally. Unless we're willing to bear the sacrifices and take the risk. That's nailing up the 95 theses there. And also look to the reformations that are coming. The truth is, there is a future which is reformed. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. So the Reformation's coming. A reformed church is always reforming. And one day we will be reformed before him. By grace, through faith, in Christ. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you know. You know the calling that you have on each of our lives here. In all the different diversity of our ministries. You know the truth for which you've saved us, that we might proclaim your lordship 
until every knee bows before Christ. And we pray that you will broaden our vision of what you are doing and what you can do, even with fallen, failing, weak people like us. We plead to you for our denomination, that you may have mercy on our rebellion and sin, and that you might lead us back to the truth of your word, the glory of your gospel, and the grace which is our, has both saved us and is our message of hope to our land. And we ask it for the glory of our Saviour Jesus. Amen. Amen.